Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, lovely to see you out here tonight. Um, I wonder, before we, we uh, undertake our study, could we take a moment and pray for the political situation? Uh, tomorrow is going to be a momentous day for our nation. Now, normally, when people pray uh, about political matters, either the audience or the speaker know what to pray for in this circumstance. I don't think any of us knows. But uh, let's just take a moment and pray and commit our political leaders. Our Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with living in a reasonably peaceful and stable society. But we do not take that for granted. And so at this time of political turmoil in Westminster, we ask, Lord, that you would intervene and that you would lead um, men and women in Parliament to a solution that brings stability and um, good governance to the country. Pray that everyone would put the country before party, that people would uh, be noble-minded, particularly over the next few days, and that a government could be established which would command the allegiance of the nation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as Alex said, uh, tonight's study is the conclusion of this short three-week series uh, on the subject of doubt. Doubt arises in different forms, and that's not surprising because uh, different types of doubt reflect the way human beings are put together. A human person is made up of mind, emotion, and will. So we have three types of doubt which align with our threefold nature. There is factual doubt, emotional doubt, and then doubt of the will, willful doubt. Now, that might sound a little theoretical, so let's consider that moment tomorrow morning when you're awoken uh, by the alarm on your phone. The threefold nature of man can be best explained by remembering this moment. All three parts of you will address the question of getting out of bed. You think about it, you have feelings about it, and you make some choices about it. Thinking, feeling, choosing. Mind, emotion, and will. Our mental faculties consider the pros and cons of getting out of bed. Perhaps I'm a student enrolled at Queen's University. I might argue to myself it's reasonable that I get up and go to my lectures. Our emotions also speak to us. On a cold, wet Monday morning, we might feel the desire to remain in a snug, warm bed. But of course, as a child, I can remember waking up on Christmas morning and almost bursting with excitement because I so wanted to jump out of bed. But mind and emotions aren't enough. It isn't enough to think and feel. I must choose. It is my will that causes me to pull the duvet away and swing my feet onto the carpet. So I think, I feel, I choose. Now, doubt can arise in any of those three departments of life. Factual doubts arise in my mind. Did I solve that maths assignment correctly? Emotional doubts come in the form of anxiety and paranoia. Do I feel as much in love with her as I did last week? And doubt of the will is a struggle over what to choose. Do I really have to slow down because of a stupid 30 miles per hour sign on the road? Must I obey the law? What if I just couldn't be bothered? Those three categories can helpfully be applied to doubts about Christianity. In our first study, Danny Crooks addressed the question of factual doubt. I remember once reading an article in the Guardian newspaper about, well, that's a terrible admission, but it was about Christianity. And one sentence really bothered me. It was written by a very clever man. And he said that Christianity was an absurdly complex intellectual structure built on the marshmallow foundations 
of Bronze Age absurdities. A wave of doubt washed over me. Had I committed to a belief system that seemed plausible in family and church life, but which shriveled into nonsense in the cold air outside uh, that comforting environment? So factual doubt challenges the objective claims of Christianity. Was Jesus the Son of God? Did he rise from the dead? In other words, are the claims of Christianity objectively true? And factual doubts are dealt with in the mind. We should surface factual doubts, analyze them, and replace them with truth. But emotional doubts, on the other hand, do not focus on the truth claims of the Bible. I'm sure you've met Christians who say things like this, sometimes I don't feel as if I'm really saved, or my feelings for God aren't as strong as they were last year. And there are two main reasons why believers experience emotional doubt, personality and the past. So the first relates to the type of personality that we have. You see, there are some people who seem to sail through life without a care in the world. But others of us are prone to anxiety or gloomy sadness or paranoia. Sin has affected each of us differently. There are unique fault lines running through our personalities. So some of us will be tortured with anxiety. Even when emotional doubters ask themselves, what if Christianity is all wrong? They usually don't have any specific reasons for doubting the claims of Christianity. Their state of mind is better described as brooding anxiety. The second reason why believers experience emotional doubt is related to the past. Old wounds can fester inside us for decades. An abusive parent can lead someone to believe lies about themselves, believe that they are worthless. Or a teenager with OCD can be seriously damaged whenever a legalistic preacher tries to use guilt to control their behavior, tries to use guilt uh, as a means of holiness. Bad preachers can inflict terrible damage, incalculable damage, upon genuine Christians with an anxious disposition. I have known fine Christians whose lives have been blighted by preachers or youth pastors who use guilt and fear to try to make people holy. And all they end up doing is to tell lies about God's character and to make the anxious believer unsure that they are loved. In fact, they end up believing the lie about themselves that they are unlovable. Their hearts can even be filled with self-loathing. I think it's helpful to view emotional doubt as just one aspect of our emotional lives that needs to be healed. The answer here is not to read loads of apologetic books or theology books. That's because the problem is subjective. The lies we have to uncover are lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We feel that the world is desolate and pointless. We don't feel loved or safe. And those feelings come about because we have a wrong view of ourselves and a wrong view of God. So the strategy for emotional doubt is to see it in the wider context of a journey to emotional health. How can I overcome anxiety? How can I learn to trust? How can I get to the point where I feel lovable? And the final category of doubt isn't about our mind or our emotions. It lives in the realm of the will. We think with our minds, we feel with our emotions, but we choose with our wills. And often the private choices we make determine what we end up thinking and feeling. I think we all recognize that type of behavior. Suppose you're at a dinner party and you find yourself seated beside a married couple. 
The husband criticizes his wife continually throughout the meal. He mocks her dress, corrects her grammar, openly flirts with another woman at the table. Is the problem here that the man no longer thinks he is married? No. Is the problem that he no longer feels as if he's in love with his wife? No. The problem is that the husband has chosen to be disloyal to his wife. He has made a choice. The bickering, the little insults, the flirting, these are all symptoms of an internal choice that the man has made some time earlier. He just couldn't be bothered to be loyal or even with behaving as a married man. So a marriage counselor in that situation wouldn't focus on how the man thinks about marriage or even his feelings towards his wife. The real problem is that the man has made a choice. In the language of the Bible, he has hardened his heart. I vividly remember being part of a CSSM team many years ago. Two girls of my own age had joined the team. One of them was a fine Christian who I'd known for years. Her friend was a vivacious, uh, a good-humored student. But in the second week of the, of the camp, she, she admitted to us that she had doubts about the lessons that we were teaching the children each day. So one evening, four of us sat in a car outside the church that the team used for its accommodation. The girl used, uh, expressed doubts about the character of the God of the Old Testament. She thought he was violent and mean. So we talked about that subject for perhaps an hour. Then she expressed doubts about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. That generated another long discussion. Then she expressed doubts related to the question of suffering, doubts about the reliability of the Bible, doubts about the Bible's sexual ethics. Now, hear me carefully here. All those questions are important. It's essential that young Christians feel able to surface those types of doubt in church. The main reason why young evangelicals are leaving church, according to researchers, is that they are not getting their questions answered. So if you have doubts, please come and talk to me or one of the other Bible teachers in the church. But sitting in that cold car park at 2 a.m. many years ago, I sensed that in this situation there was a deeper problem. Every time one issue was answered, there would be a moody silence and then another objection would be raised. And it eventually became apparent that the girl didn't want Christianity to be true. The factual and emotional doubts were only surface issues. Lurking underneath was this thing I'm calling willful doubt. The girl had already taken a decision privately. She had made a choice to walk away from her profession. And having made that choice, she then went looking for arguments that would post-rationalize her choice. So, so far in this study, I've been trying to build up a sort of mental picture for you. Imagine that factual and emotional doubt uh, sit side by side on one level, and then lurking underneath at a deeper level, there is this thing called willful doubt. And the point of that picture is to alert you to a critical danger. When we experience factual or emotional doubt, we are at risk of slipping down into willful doubt. A trapdoor can open and we fall into willful doubt. And in its full-blown state, willful doubt grows into the thing the Bible calls the sin of unbelief. So what I want to do tonight is take three passages of Scripture. The first is an example of factual doubt. The second illustrates emotional doubt. But our key aim in these studies is to identify the moment of risk, the risk of falling from those types of doubt into willful doubt. And then for our final case study, we'll see full-blown willful doubt out in the open, if you like. So let's get underway by reading John chapter 20. 
from John chapter 20, if you have your Bible, and we'll start at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas was a courageous and loyal man. We know that because in chapter 11 of this gospel, the disciples were aware that following Christ to Jerusalem could well lead to their own death. But Thomas says, let us go and die with him. Death seems to have loomed large in Thomas's mind. He was called Thomas the twin. If I was to be wildly speculative for a moment, I wonder if his twin brother might have died. That was just a piece of useless speculation. But whatever, for whatever reason, Thomas was brutally honest about death, wasn't he? I mean, you can hear that in his description of the Lord's crucifixion. There's this uncompromising, raw physicality to the description of Jesus' mortal wounds. But it would appear that Thomas believed at this stage that death was the end. And so he flatly refused to accept the testimony of the other disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. Not least, of course, because the other disciples had let him down terribly. They had behaved appallingly. All the disciples were at a really the lowest point of their lives at this point. Now, preachers should be extremely careful about criticizing characters in the Bible. But the Lord Jesus himself, I think, gives Thomas a gentle rebuke in this passage. He graciously gives Thomas the evidence that he had demanded, but then he tells him to stop doubting and believe, and he goes on to praise those who believe without seeing. Thomas isn't put in a favorable light when contrasted with those who believe by reading the Scriptures. That's why John explains in verse 31 that he wrote his gospel so the people who had not seen the risen Christ could still come to believe in him by reading the Scriptures. So given that context, it's not unfair to point out the slight hint of stubborn obstinacy in Thomas's words. In verse 25, Thomas sets his own terms for evidence, and then he says, unless I get this evidence, I will not believe. That's interesting language, isn't it? I will not. Now, please don't think I'm accusing Thomas of willful doubt here. Absolutely not. He stays within the circle of Christian fellowship, even when he is lost and confused, and he reacts magnificently when Christ appears to him. But it is a really interesting moment. I have known far too many young adults who have allowed the trap door to open and have chosen, unlike Thomas, to fall into willful doubt. What was Thomas's mistake after all? He found the idea of, the, of life after death to be wildly implausible. Yes, he was loyal and courageous, but he really did think that death was the end. 
I'm sure we have all met people who simply refuse to explore the possibility that there is more to reality than physical stuff, more than atoms banging into atoms. They dismiss the possibility of an unseen world of spiritual realities. They wave away all talk of a, an eternal soul or a Christ who has conquered death. Now, people like that have made a choice. Before anyone opens their mouths in a debate, the willful doubter, the unbelieving willful doubter, has already drawn the boundaries. Any concept that goes outside his materialistic worldview gets immediately dismissed. I wonder tonight, are you a little like that? If you're being honest with yourself, you play the game of factual doubt, deep down you know you've made a choice. You stubbornly, obstinately refuse even to consider the concept of an afterlife or a final judgment. Well, your problem is that you aren't doubting enough. You need to doubt your materialism, doubt your neat little belief system about reality being a closed physical system. And if you aren't prepared to do that, then your heart will eventually harden into that terrible state known as unbelief. Unbelief in Scripture is a refusal to evaluate evidence. When any light shines, the unbeliever turns away into the darkness. Unbelief says, I don't want light. Thank God that Thomas never fell into that sin. And as soon as he saw the evidence, he kneeled at Jesus' feet. I remember once talking to a student after a talk I'd given on the resurrection. And he waved away all the sort of careful arguments that Danny gave us a fortnight ago. It's just so implausible, he said. For thousands of years, people were born, they lived, and they died. Then there's this one big anomalous event when Jesus rises again. And then we're back to the normal routines again. We're born, we live, and then we die. Why should I believe something that I've never experienced in my own life? If I remember correctly, I was eating a large cherry scone at the time, which was why he was able to talk so much. But anyway, I cleared my mouth and I said, what do you study at university? He said, physics. I said, so you believe in the Big Bang? Of course I do, he said. Have you experienced many Big Bangs yourself? I asked him. Don't be stupid, he replied. So why do you believe in something that's so outside of your own experience? I asked him. He said, well, because it explains why we're all here. Everything flows from that moment. I said, exactly. The resurrection isn't an anomalous blip in an unchanging pattern of life and birth and death. Christ's resurrection changed everything. It was like a big bang that altered a whole new reality. So I'm going to explain as best I could how the moral and spiritual landscape of creation was completely reconfigured by the resurrection. But my student friend was unimpressed. All that stuff is just words, he said. Now that boy, sorry, that young man suffered from willful doubt. He demonstrated an obstinate, stubborn refusal to challenge his own belief system. Even when I talked about life's meaning, its purpose, its significance, and its value, he preferred to embrace a meaningless existence rather than doubt his own beliefs, even for a moment. For our second case study, let's turn back to John's Gospel to chapter 11. Now, I spoke about Mary of Bethany and Crescent a few weeks ago, but I, I just want to pick out one tiny detail from the story. Uh, the context is that Jesus has been told that his dear friend Lazarus was terminally ill. Lazarus had two sisters, and they had sent pleading messages to Jesus asking him to come to the family home in Bethany to heal Lazarus, but it was too late. 
By the time the Lord turns up, Lazarus has died. We'll read verses 17 to 20 and then 28 to 32. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Down to verse 28. After she, that's Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we'll finish there. You can feel the emotional distress in Mary's words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The woman is distraught, overcome with grief. But there is a deeper emotion here, isn't there? Disappointment. Mary was disappointed in Christ. She had cried out to him in distress, and he hadn't even bothered to turn up in time. She felt as if Jesus didn't really love her. This is emotional doubt, isn't it? Does Christ really love me or not? Perhaps some terrible disappointment has spread over your life. You cried out to God time and time again to fix the problem, but heaven was silent. Your prayers seemed to bounce off a sky of burnished brass. And the experience left you feeling unloved and alone. And it's in moments like that, moments of terrible risk, that the trapdoor can open and we can fall into willful doubt. It cracks open for just a fleeting moment in this story before getting slammed shut. Look at verse 20 again. When the Lord arrives, Martha goes out to greet him, but Mary, we are told, stayed inside. Why? Well, she was just so hurt. Hurt and disappointment can sometimes tempt us to go into a sulk with God. When I want to meet him or spend time with him, and that sulky attitude, let me say in all gentleness, can open the trapdoor. Before long, someone can find themselves wallowing in willful doubt. Now, what protected Mary? Well, this is a little interesting detail I want to focus on. The text is so carefully recorded. What prompted Mary to spring up and run to Jesus? It was when she was told by Martha that the teacher was asking for her. The teacher. What a lovely title. It had a special significance for Mary, as most of you know. She had sat for hours at Jesus' feet, an intelligent, substantial woman learning and worshiping. He had taught her the truth about life and reality. She had seen the moral grandeur of God as she listened to him teach. And it was those memories which banished her sulky spirit and caused her to run back to Christ. And by seeing her disappointment in the context of all that Jesus had done for her, she then learns that she is loved, deeply loved by God. Her divine companion stands beside her. He doesn't say very much, but he weeps with her. It is the emotional pivot on which the entire gospel turns. 
And by refusing to fall into a sulky, willful doubt, she discovers that she is deeply loved. Now, not everyone has taken that wholesome path. I can tell you the story because it took place miles from here and the woman in question was a complete stranger visiting from a different part of the world. I can't even remember her name. I had just finished preaching in a church about 40 miles from here and this lady approached me. She told me she had been a believer. As a young girl, she had been a passionate member of various Christian ministries. She got married to a good man. But after some years, she learned that they were going to be childless. I just can't get over it, she said. Every time I see a child or a pregnant woman or a woman with a toddler on her hip, the words, the words trailed off into a desolate silence. And after a while she stirred, she said, I prayed, oh, I prayed. But no one seemed to care. I still go to church occasionally, she said, but it's more of a cultural thing for me now. I happen to know something of how that lady felt. Her situation is the source of terrible disappointment. But I couldn't help wondering if the teacher had been calling for her, perhaps for years, but she had chosen to ignore his voice. Sometimes willful doubt can grow if we allow life's disappointments to send us into a sulk with God. So be rational for a moment. If Christianity is true, then think of all that Christ has done for you. If Christianity is true, you can then locate your disappointment in the context of all that, of God's grand story, a story that ends with God himself wiping away our tears. In the end, there will be no more sadness or deprivation. So listen once again for the teacher's voice and then get up and walk quickly into his presence. And in that loving place, pour your heart out to him as Mary did. He may not say much, but he will weep with you because he knows how you feel, even in the situation, the illustration I've just given. You know, when the Ethiopian official in Acts 8 is met by Philip the Evangelist, he's reading Isaiah 53. Now remember that that poor Ethiopian, although he was an influential, wealthy man, had experienced a terrible injustice. He had been forcibly castrated. So is it any wonder that he's staring at one particular verse in Isaiah 53, the one that says of Christ, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Christ can empathize with your sorrows because he is the man of sorrows. And that truth will uphold the faith of the emotional doubter. Our final case study will show us willful doubt in its full-blown form, the state which the Bible calls the sin of unbelief. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. The context here, I want to focus on verse 12, but we'll start at verse 7 uh, for uh, context. And the writer says, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. And then down to verse 12. This is the key verse. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The writer to the Hebrews is reminding his audience of a terrible incident 
in Israel's history. God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Their lives had been hard, oppressed by these cruel taskmasters. But God had rescued them and was leading them to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Their journey had been tough. And at times on that journey, they had doubted. At a place called Meribah, they even doubted if God existed. But the Lord dealt with those types of doubts with kindness and patience. And at long last, the people come to a place called Kadesh Barnea right up to the border of the promised land. Moses sent spies into the land and they came back with samples of the beautiful produce of the land, huge bunches of juicy grapes, so big and heavy that they had to be carried on a pole slung between two men. And yet, in this awful moment, a truly perverse decision is made. The people decide not to enter the promised land. In the language of Hebrews, they had a sinful, unbelieving heart that turned away from God. You see, they learned that there would be enemies in the land, which means they would have to fight. And that meant they would have to trust God. That was the bit that caused them to turn away and say, nah, not for me. The whole scheme was based on the concept of trusting God, having enough faith in his love and wisdom to obey him. And as Nicholas Gray reminded us this morning, the people began to have rose-tinted memories of their lives back in Egypt. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. You'd think they were describing a sandals resort, wouldn't you? They were slaves. But in that moment, with that perverse way of thinking, even slavery in Egypt seemed more attractive to them in a life based on trusting and obeying God. Many, many years ago, uh, Alex's father and I used to run a youth club at Crescent. Yes. Anyway, uh, let's just pass over that trauma. But I can think of, of one example, more than one example, of a young adult who, as it were, came right up to the border fence of the Promised Land and then turned away. You see, a group of teenagers can have tremendous fun together, but there comes a moment in a Christian group where genuine believers will walk on into the land. They begin a life of faith and obedience. They walk into a kingdom made up of servants of Jesus Christ. And one or two of their friends just stand leaning on the border fence. They've seen what the Christian life is like. They've even tasted, as it were, the goodness of God for themselves. But they won't cross over because they have made the choice, the willful choice, not to trust God. This is willful doubt when it is full-blown. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Researchers reckon that one million young adults will leave evangelical churches in the United States every year for the next 30 years. The fashionable term used to describe this transition is deconstruction. And by far the most common reason for deconstructing faith is the Bible's sexual ethic and its insistence that gender is part of God's creatorial order. On the surface, thousands of young adults will claim to have factual uh, doubt and emotional doubt about the Christian faith. But the truth is that many of them have opened the trapdoor and fallen into willful doubt. They simply don't want the Bible to be true or authoritative. Now, we have to be a little careful here. 
in these discussions because, of course, some things in evangelical culture do need to be deconstructed, especially at those points where religion and politics fuse together, have fused together. Always creates an idol. But the core issue at the moment is the authority of the Bible in matters related to gender and sexuality. Now, that observation leads to an important challenge for the church. It is not enough to assert biblical values. We cannot send our young people out into the world armed only with a set of assertions. They have been called to live in a climate of contempt. They will be called intolerant bigots, homophobes, transphobes, dangerous, unpleasant people who should be excluded from society. And if all we have given them is a formulaic, infantile story of conversion and some rules about how, how to live, then we have failed them. We have sent lambs out to face wolves, savage wolves, with no protection. So it is vital that as a church we explain why the Bible's vision for sexuality and gender is a better story. Why it's more rational. Why it leads to genuine flourishing. And above all, we must build a church in which young people free, feel free to express their doubts, to surface them, so that they can be dealt with. The Apostle Jude tells us that, that our job is to treat doubters with mercy. So we're done. Willful doubt can lurk underneath factual and emotional doubt. For the unbeliever, willful doubt is expressed as a stubborn, obstinate refusal to doubt their own materialism. For the Christian, willful doubt is a trapdoor that we can fall through when we allow the disappointments of life to drive us into a sulk with God. Thank God for the example of noble believers like Thomas and Mary, who slammed the trapdoor shut. But then there is the solemn warning that willful doubt, when it is fully grown, becomes that ugly thing, the sin of unbelief. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, I'm conscious that this short series may have churned up some sensitive and anxious thoughts. So please know that our Bible teachers here are making a serious offer when we say that we want to be a support to those of you who have experienced doubt. Don't stew in guilt about your doubts. Surface them and ask someone to help. So please talk to me after this service. On the other hand, if you do see me some, talking to somebody, do not assume they're troubled by doubt. Uh, they could well be talking to me about football particularly if I'm talking to the chairman. Um, and if that's all too intimidating for you, then come along next week to our Equip Live event when you'll be able to send in questions anonymously using something called Slido, I think. Uh, I don't understand it. And um, it's a cruel sport, but uh, I can be tortured with questions. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you for your courteous attention. Our Father, we thank you that the Christian faith is not blind is not a leap out of a window into the darkness hoping that we land safely. Faith is the morally appropriate response to evidence. And so we pray that you would help all of us to know how to handle our doubts. And Father, for this particular type of doubt that we have been thinking about tonight, we pray first of all for your people here tonight, some who perhaps have experienced a terrible difficulty or disappointment, some unfixable problem in their lives, and it has caused them to feel disappointed in you. Pray that they would follow the example of Mary, 
who knew that the teacher was calling for her and ran to him. And Father, for those here tonight who are yet outside of Christ, pray that you would give them the intellectual honesty to challenge their own belief system, not to have this obstinate, stubborn refusal to doubt their own beliefs. We thank you, Lord, for this time, and we pray your blessing on anyone here who is tortured with doubt, whatever it may be. Help them, Lord, to forge abiding friendships with wise Christian counselors who will be able to help. We commit them to you lovingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Alex.